I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. Reporting to you this Sunday afternoon in the middle of October 2022 from a farm track in the east of England, Norfolk County to be precise. And guess who I'm joined by? Dog Aris. Say hi. Don't patronise me. Okay, sorry. Anyway, very glad to be joined once again by my best dog friend Rose. She's very well, thank you. And I'm doing fine. Hope you are too. Just in the last few days since the previous episode of this podcast went out, it's got very golden on the trees and leaves and shit, calling Captain Autumn. No cows invading Castle Buckles this week. Although today there was what could be the beginning of an invasion or it might just be a one-off, but it was a lot of ladybirds. I think overall it's better than the cows. Certainly the plops are smaller. Anyway, let's raise the tone, shall we? I'll tell you a bit about my guest for podcast number 190. He is the British novelist and screenwriter Ian McEwan. Ian McEwan, I said it in a weird way. McEwan facts. Ian, currently age 74, was born in Aldershot, Hampshire, but spent large parts of his childhood living in Singapore, Germany, and North Africa, Libya, to be precise, where his father, a working-class Scot who had worked his way up the ranks to become a major in the British Army, was posted. Back in England, after attending a secondary grammar boarding school at the start of the 60s, Ian studied at the University of Sussex, where he received a BA in English Literature in 1970. He got his MA in English Literature down the road from here, at the University of East Anglia. Ian's first novels, The Cement Garden and The Comfort of Strangers, were published towards the end of the 70s, and those novels, which included themes of sexual perversion and murder, earned McEwan the nickname Ian Macabre in some circles. Ian Macabre. But by the 90s... Novels like Black Dogs and the Booker Prize-winning Amsterdam incorporated history, politics and ethical dilemmas, along with minutely observed passages about the interior lives of the protagonists. McEwen writes brilliantly and unsettlingly about the way our minds work, but part of the reason his novels have ended up reaching such a wide audience is that he never loses sight of telling a good story, and several of Ian's novels have been turned into films, including an adaptation of The Cement Garden, starring past podcast guest Charlotte Gainsbourg. There's also film adaptations of On Chesil Beach, starring Saoirse Ronan, Enduring Love, one of my favourite Ian McEwan books, starring Daniel Craig and Reese Ifans, and perhaps most successfully, Atonement, 
an adaptation of a book published in 2001 that was already considered by many to be amongst the greatest British novels ever written. The 2007 film version directed by Joe Wright with screenplay by Christopher Hampton and starring Keira Knightley and James McAvoy was a critical and commercial smash. My conversation with Ian was recorded a few Prime Ministers ago in early July of this year, 2022. We recorded face-to-face in a meeting room where, through the big glass windows, we got a great view of Camden and Hampstead and North London sprawling beneath us on a hazy summer afternoon. We talked about some of the experiences from his own life of childhood, parenthood, love, loyalty, illness, that he has invested in the story and life of Roland Baines, the main character in his latest novel, Lessons, available now in all good bookshops. Not those terrible bookshops. Lessons is the story of the whole of one man's life, Roland, and the dramas that weave in and out of it, along with global events post-World War II, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Suez Crisis, Chernobyl, the fall of the Berlin Wall, 9-11, Brexit, Covid, themes of poverty, chaotic governments, climate change, racism, immigration, etc. And Lessons explores the ways that these kinds of events and issues, which are usually beyond our control, end up shaping our lives and our memories. A. Buxton is calling it classic McEwen. Good characters, compelling interweaving narratives, big themes. And you're never far from discovering a good new word with Ian McEwen. He's one of those writers like Cormac McCarthy who's just on top of their vocab. I never realised what the word amenuensis meant before this podcast conversation. I think I'd heard it before, but I assumed it was a sort of poetic muse. Turns out to be more of a secretarial assistant. What else was in our conversation? Well, I'll say at this point, just in case it's a, a, a trigger for anyone listening, that as well as talking a little bit about death, but you're probably used to that by now, pops up a fair bit in this podcast. We also refer to the effects of dementia and Alzheimer's, in case that's something you don't really want to hear about, although we don't really dwell on it, but just so you're aware. We also spoke about the implications and ethics of AI, another subject that seems to be popping up more and more on the podcast, and a subject that formed the basis of Ian McEwan's sci-fi novel, I'm going to go ahead and call it a sci-fi novel, Machines Like Me, from 2019, in which a young man in an alternate, technologically more advanced version of the 1980s suffers the consequences of blithely investing in a sexy robot man that turns out to be superior to him, not just physically and sexily, but intellectually and also ethically. Or is it? But our conversation began with me asking about Ian's attitude to his reviews. Back at the end, for some brief waffle and a few links for you. But right now, with Ian McEwen, here we go. Ramble Jack, and have a ramble chat. We'll focus first on this, then concentrate on that. Come on, let's chew the fat and have a ramble 
what are you like with your reviews? Do you seek them out? No. Um, my wife reads them. And I, so I get, I get the general kind of temperature of the thing. Mm. But um, since, you know, I've been now doing this for more than 50 years, a bad review, uh, phrases can stick in your mind and make you indignant necessarily. And I don't want those phrases. I don't want to lend the neural space to them. So if I've had a stinker, then at least I know that. But I don't actually have to carry with me the specifics of it. Um, it's not good. And if you're not reading your bad reviews, then it's, I think, bad faith to not... You've got to stay away from your good ones, too. And that's a bit more difficult, of course, but that's what I try to do. I mean, I wrote a novel about climate change called Solar. And First book of yours I read. Oh, was it? Yeah. And it went down pretty well here in Canada and elsewhere in the English-speaking world, but not in the States. In the States, everything hangs on one review. If you're the front review of the New York Times book review, there was a very long, silly review. I didn't read, but actually in the end, Annalena, my wife, read me the first sentence. She said, which said, there are some novels that are so bad that they're good, and there are also novels that are so good that they're bad, and this is the latter. Oh, you got a good but bad one. Okay. So good that it's bad. Then it, it's an occupational hazard. And novels are very personal things. You cannot say to a friend or even someone you hardly know, look, don't take this personally, but I think your novel's terrible. It's personal. Yeah. You know? um, and so even after doing it this long, uh, it can just lower your mood. So it's useful to just have a, a longer view of it. I mean, it's worth knowing that things aren't going well. But you probably get a sense of that in other ways. Yeah, absolutely. You can actually have um, a sort of negative or mixed press and but have a very engage, engaging live audience, for example. Mm -hmm. um, the personal contacts often can override your sense. And also friends write and fellow writers write. A good letter from a fellow writer is worth more than anything, I think. Yeah, so is that your policy then with friends if they do something that you think is a bit of a stinker, is the understanding that you don't ask directly, what did you think of my thing? No, never. You never ask. No. The convention that's grown up, unspoken among my generation, writer friends, um, would be for silence. Yeah. <laughs> if you didn't like it. <laughs> but sometimes, isn't the silence pointed and it's just an elephant in the room, like... Well, you just have to read into it. Okay. But usually, I Suck think it it's up. not a great... Yeah, I think you just got to take it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, silence is the only way. Yeah. And then how are you, though, with the whole... I mean, you've had a frustrating morning getting here. Your taxi took you to the wrong place. Yeah. It's kind of a drag. It's a hot day. Hot day. I felt like Monsieur Hulot, you know, sort of uh -huh. blundering along, trying to read Google Maps in bright sunshine... Two pieces of luggage. I can't read with close up without glasses. Uh -huh. They're in my top pocket. It's just that, you know, that. I felt that however I'm feeling from someone watching me from, say, this floor, and you might have seen me down there somewhere, I'd be a, a very comic figure. You know. Just sort of looking around angrily, yeah. tutting. Hating the world, <laughs> hating the sunshine. <laughs> 
that's the ideal frame of mind for yeah, a guest just for an before interview. they do a yeah, podcast. And then how are you though with the interviews in general? I've you know, I've heard you do a few over the years and you're always um measured and polite and you don't lose your shit. But <laughs> Do you get angry in interviews and, uh, and no. do you get irritated or are you just sort of no. zen? No, I don't generally. I mean, the kind of people who like novels, literary novels, are generally the kind of people I get along with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've never found it a problem. I did listen to a, a BBC interview with Evelyn Waugh, mm-hmm. three interviewers, made in 1953, and for anyone who ever thinks they're living in a declining civilization, this would really cheer them up. The interview was so asinine. Well, Mr. War, uh, what are your hobbies? And at no point in an hour interview did they mention these three stuffy fellows with cut glass accents. At no point did they mention his work. Yeah. And War got crosser and crosser and crosser. How would the man on the Clapham omnibus respond to your particular take on the world? And War just lost it. Uh, and he stayed polite for so long. It's a wonderful drama, actually. Uh, I'm sure it can be. It's, it's on the BBC archive, or maybe it's the British Library archive. Okay. One of the two. I'll look that up. Re- or look YouTube. Up. How not to interview a writer. Okay. Anyway. But anyway, you know how to do it. I will delete what are your hobbies. <laughs> and... Go instead to the book. This is a long book for you, right? Lessons I'm talking about? Yeah, it comes in at just under 170,000 words. My longest novel to date before that was Atonement, which is about 140. Uh So, yeah. And this has a lot of autobiographical elements. It tells the story of a man's life. It's a kind of doppelganger, uh, central figure, Mm. Roland Baines. It's a sort of life I might have led if things had gone differently. The autobiography is heavily fictionalised, but it's obviously, you know, I do draw a fair bit. But the central events in Roland's life, apart from the fall of the Berlin Wall, where, which I just drew on my own notebooks for, uh, they're all fictional. So the, the, the three major figures, characters, the women in his life, Miriam Cornell, a piano teacher who sexually abuses him and draws him into a relationship while he's still only 14, while at boarding school. His first wife, Elisa, a German, who suddenly and mysteriously vanishes, leaving him holding a seven-month-old baby. And um, much later in life, Daphne, who dies of cancer, they're all complete fictional characters. And, I mean, there are tiny elements of people I've known wrapped into them but certainly Roland's parents his background North Africa my boarding school but I stayed at it all the way that's where our lives diverged I mean he leaves as it were pursued by demons at the age of 16 misses out on a university education and drifts in in a way that I could well imagine myself drifting really I mean you you do strike me as someone who's always had quite a clear sense of purpose and you were I mean you were writing in your 20s and and getting some success yeah my first book was published in 75 I started writing in 1970 so Mm. yes you were 30 when the cement garden was published I think yeah I was probably 28 when I started writing so that would be about right yeah yeah so I mean you weren't I, I was 
massively drifting in Were the you? 20s. Yeah. yeah. And and there was a lot of stuff about Roland that I could definitely relate to. Mm. But if I hadn't found if I if I hadn't found writing, Adam, I think I I would have drifted because I didn't really want to be a teacher and that was the sort of great attractor that would have sucked me in. I was lucky too that uh, from about the age of 17 I was passionate about literature. I thought it was a sort of priesthood. I'm one of those writers with an English teacher who was rather inspirational. Okay, stand on the desks. Uh, but at university, by the second year there, I thought of literature as a sort of conversation to which I could join in. And the idea of going off to do a PhD was fading on me very fast. But I didn't want a job. I just knew that I didn't want to sign up to a nine-to-five job with its slow increments of pension arrangements and so on. In some ways, I am a child of the 60s in that respect. But I give an account in the novel of something that happened to Roland. He's living in North Africa. The Suez crisis happens. Colonel Nasser of Egypt nationalises the Suez Canal. And the authorities thought that those living in next-door Libya, British citizens, might become objects of uh, hatred for this Arab nationalism that was sweeping through the Middle East at the time. In fact, it didn't. Uh, there was a, a, a tiny bit of disturbance. But we were all herded into military camps. My mother, thank goodness, was away in England at the time. My father was too busy to pay much attention to me, and I was free for the first time in my life. And I think that had a huge impact on me, and I've given that to Roland, that sense that he could never commit to anything for very long because he so much loved this, cherished this memory of complete freedom. Ten years old, hanging out in the machine gun nests, sitting in the tanks, hanging out with ordinary soldiers who spoke rudely all the time. And that's what you were doing in Tripoli? Yeah, in Tripoli. So it was only nine or ten days, but it had such an impact oh, on me. Oh, really? And it was a tiny desert camp, you know, sandbags, tanks, machine guns, a sort of boy dream, really. You know? Yeah. And you were literally left to your own devices? Yeah, with my chums, my school yeah. chums. Yeah, we were in heaven, boy heaven. But yes, some key childhood memories I've freely granted to Roland but the essentials um, cutting him loose at the age of 16 uh, was very much not my life mm -hmm. after Tripoli then you're off to boarding school yeah and that is in Suffolk at this slightly unusual public school was it even a public school no it was a state grammar school okay state boarding grammar school right it was an experiment, that, a kind of experiment that rather fell out of fashion because it was selective, highly selective. So all the kids passed the 11 plus or some IQ test. Wolverston Hall. Wolverston Hall. Wolverston Hall. It ran for about 40 years. It was operated by the London County Council, which was the GLC's forerunner. And mostly the boys were from working class single parent families. There was a smattering of kids, army brats like myself. Then there was a, quite a lot of kids from sort of bohemian backgrounds. Um, my closest friend, who I'm still a good friend with, his mother was an actor and he wanted to be an actor and, and became one. Uh, there were kids whose fathers were ambassadors. Um, so it was a really great class melting pot. Highly uh, unusual place, only 320 kids. 
very keen on music. It was an opera almost every term. It was very, very good at rugby. It had a savage, bullying Welsh rugby coach. Um, but he got results. I mean, we were unbeaten in the area. We used to play seven-a-side at Twickenham. Beautiful grounds, lovely Palladian house, perched above the River Orwell. Uh, and it did, did have a rather easy manner, but uh, and nearly all the teachers were, as I mentioned in the novel, had served in the Second World War. The shadows of the Second World War, which I was particularly interested in making a part of Roland's early life, uh, were very, very present there. So it was still in a time when a word of sarcasm could steal a class from a teacher. Everyone took their authority more or less for granted. Um, How did your parents know about that place then? Had friends of theirs sent children? Oh, I think my dad said something like, Sergeant Smith's boy went there and, so, and seems happy. Yeah. So I, I went. There was no secondary school in Libya for me. So uh, to get on a DC-3 twin-engine plane and fly 2,000 miles from home, it didn't make me cry, but I sort of folded in on myself rather. But slowly in this place, just come to, I came to love it, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. Lovely teachers, really relaxed. Uh, the boys were great. There was a fair racial mix. Never encountered any racism there. There was a bit of bullying, inevitably. Children can be savage and remorseless, ruthless. <laughs> um, but it made a big impact on me. I think the classless kind of feel of it yeah. um, was very, very attractive. And then I went to a very new university which had wanted to redraw the map of learning. Um, this was Sussex University in 1966. And Asa Briggs was there, who was my dad's history tutor. Oh, right. Well, yeah. I was. I came much later in life to be a friend of, of Asa. I mean, he was an elevated figure at that time, when yeah. I, and I never met him as a student. And so all the teaching was tutorial, either one-on-one or one-on-two. There was a standard English literature degree, but I also did French. I studied international relations. A wonderful seminar, quantum mechanics for no nothing, liberal arts, no nothings. It was called. Wow! It was just perfect. That's and very a wonderful. Um, physicist yeah. teaching it, who just couldn't believe the depths of our our ignorance. So um, Sussex again had this rather sort of can-do, classless feel. And I got a much broader education than I would have had I gone to done a survey course, you know, Chaucer to Eliot, uh, oh. with Anglo-Saxon thrown in from either in Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, so, in a way, it set the tone for my writing, which I always had this interest in science, but also international relations gave me, and history, gave me a whole set of interests that weren't so missing from my early stories. I mean, they were very dark, very claustrophobic, very perverse. And I finally wrote myself into such a small space that I took some time off to write a movie with Richard Eyre, my, who's you know, still a good friend. And we made a movie about, really about the reading of history. It was called The Ploughman's Lunch. I had such a good time, but the space between pitching it to Richard while he was in an interval of... I think he was directing Guys and Dolls at the National Theatre. Uh-huh. Uh, and actually 
being out on location was about four months. Um, and I thought, this is wonderful. This is what I'll do. I'll write novels or stories and then sandwich them with movies. It never worked like that again. It was yeah. never so simple. My next project was two years with Bernardo Bertolucci uh, on a movie we never shot, never Oh, really? Made. What was that going to be? It was an adaptation of a Moravia novel called 1934 about a young man who goes to Capri to commit suicide and can't quite work out his reasons for living. But Sounds he, like a hoot. <laughs> it was terrible. And at one point, Bernardo said, Ian, I think um, this is a comedy in the style of Lubitsch. I think you must watch To Be or Not To Be. So I went off and watched Lubitsch movies and I wrote the whole rewrote the whole thing and he, Bernardo read it and said hmm, no I think it's a tragedy and I realised that what he needed from me was the role of uh, an amanuensis you know just writing out his current thoughts whereas I had all the novelist's arrogance it's a big demotion from being God as a novelist in your tiny little plot to being a kind of Lance Corporal in the army of people required to make a movie. So I've always had a very bumpy relationship with screenwriting, loving it, then being disappointed by it, or uh, never quite quite working out. But do you, are you a movie fan in general? On and off, yeah. Mm-hmm. What was the last film that you remember enjoying? Um, recent, film? recent film? Well, I've watched a lot of television filming and I I realised if I was now 25 I'd be writing a series because I find them so absorbing so interesting the cinematography which used to be rather dull on television yeah yeah now I guess because we all have larger screens with better definition so what sort of series are you watching so you know I I thought the bureau Le Bureau was one of the greatest things I'd watched on TV Succession I got sucked into I mean all the things that everyone else gets sucked into I watched that Ethan Hawke movie. It's a trilogy, Before Dawn and After Midnight. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's because I just finished writing a whole-life novel. I was so interested in the way one could track a life by letting the actors age 10 years apart, and come back to it, pick them up again in their own lives. It all fell apart, apparently, in the third one. I, uh, yes, I only saw the first one. Oh, the next one is in Paris, yeah. shot nine years later. Then there's another one, nine years after that, shot in Greece. And uh, the two leads have a row. I mean, it's a sort of vaguely scripted row, but it turned out to be a real row. Oh. And they parted company. So that's Richard mm. Linklater, is it? Yeah. Um, and what was her name? Um, Julie Delpy. She's terrific in it. Apparently they really fell out. But the row is one of the best rows I've ever seen scripted or written i mean i know that actors love doing rows there's something you know the archers for example is full of them yeah <laughs> <laughs> about polytunnels yeah yeah so this one seems so real to me because they're having a little away day that the family has paid for they go to a nice hotel and they things are a bit scratchy between them but that they make up and they're just about to start making love and the phone rings and it's his son who's in the States, with his son by his previous marriage. And somehow, when he comes off the phone, the magic has gone, and it spirals downwards. It's just extraordinary. Oh, well, I'll seek it out. Yeah, just I do. 
um, you could skip nearly all of it till the, till that scene. But. Yeah, I like moments like that in movies. I'm guessing that you're not a Marvel fanatic. Oh, so the movies. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm I'm a bit too much of a realist, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my wife worked for Marvel Comics. I think it was one of her first jobs before she became a journalist. Right. Translating from American to English, yeah. the dialogue of Spider-Man comics. It's the early 70s, mid-70s, somewhere around there. Okay. So I do have a connection. Translating from, you said, American to English. English, yes. How does that work? Well, they just got rid of any kind of slang. Well, things that an English 11-year-old might not understand. Oh, OK, like American references. Because it was a child thing at that point. Right, got you. Adults didn't involve themselves in Spider-Man, I don't think, yes. or unless they had learning difficulties. Um, but now, you know, everyone has learning difficulties. Sure. Um, before we move on, um, going back to boarding school, which is an experience that I had as well, being uh-huh. sent off to boarding school... And it wasn't exactly the same sort of place that you went to, but it was fairly progressive and non-horrible. You know, it was co-ed, so that was a big... Oh, that would have made a big difference Yeah, massive to difference. Me. Yeah. And uh, we didn't really have uniforms, and so it was... Oh, wow. Well. It's quite a groovy place. But still, the fact of being separated from my parents and sent away took a while to get over. When you were told that... This is what was going to happen to you. How did you feel about that? My memory is that that was the worst part, anticipating the separation. Well, this was the 50s, and I just thought it was the fabric of reality. I mean, it it was as if my parents said, it's going to rain in 10 minutes. I didn't question it or fight it. I just thought, this is what's happening to me. And I noticed that my mum worked in the YMCA bookshop in downtown Tripoli. And she started bringing home children's books about boarding schools. <laughs> uh, and I, it was only much later that I realised that it was all part of a plan. So there were a whole series of novels called Jennings. Sure. Um, Jennings and Derbyshire. Yeah, and Derbyshire. And I think that must have softened me up because I, I thought I'd quite like to get into a few scrapes, as they were called. Scrapes and japes. Yeah. Also, I craved woodland and deciduous trees and how I might get lost in them. And in fact, there it was. I was in an absolutely beautiful corner of Suffolk. I very rapidly found uh, an uh, ordnance survey map and found woods and rivers and lakes no one else was much interested, but I found a friend to come with me. And in many ways, I did live out the dream that I had in my mind in sweltering Tripoli. But I had the same experience as you. I mean, you can't send a... I mean, I left home at 11. I mean, and stayed away... I mean, three-quarters of my life was elsewhere mm-hmm. for the next seven years, by which time I was a young adult. Um, and that's kind of well it certainly changes the relationship you have with your parents absolutely and Mm. it makes it that much harder to ever have the kind of relationship that many modern parents have a a more friendly familiar relationship with their children well i've i've often pondered this and and i think it's a very interesting topic we talk of the 60s in terms of not just sex and drugs and rock and roll but you know beginnings of the women's movement, the second wave of the women's movement, the environmental movement, and so on. 
But there was one element that's never discussed, and I think it's this, that the relationship between adults and children changed somewhere between 1967 or 8 and 1973 and 4. Changed fundamentally. In the 50s, one was loved or not loved, depending on the circumstances, but basically you were managed Mm -hmm. rather than spoken to. Children weren't listened to or spoken to. Um, in the same way. And I remember being on the plane going back to boarding school after my first home holiday. That was when I was tearful. But the plane had to stop in Malta and this gentleman got on and sat down next to me and he completely shocked me when he said, once we were established in the air, he said, do you believe in God? Whoa. Um, No one had ever... Ask me such a question. Can't do that and we had an plane. amazing conversation. I'd never even given it much thought. <laughs> I, I think I answered as I thought I should, that I did. But as we went on, I, I loosened up. Um, that all changed, um, generally, I think, between parents and children. Yes, sent to prison for asking a child if they believe in Gardner. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> or sitting next to a child, yeah. Uh, so... I had stepchildren and then and I had sons and the environment in which they grew up was fundamentally different. I saw a, a rather lovely quotation from a book about psychedelic drugs and it said, if you want to know what it's like to take LSD, have breakfast with a four-year-old. And I thought, <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> uh, there's a bit... What do you prefer? Like, if, if I've got a bit that I want to quote from the book, is it better if you read it or if I read it? No, you read it. Okay. This is towards the end uh, of the book. In the 50s, many fathers were not much involved with their children, especially their daughters. Embraces, expressions of love, were thought too showy, too embarrassing. His own childhood was typical. Smacks, this is Roland, the protagonist, smacks to the legs, to the bottom, were common. Children, however loved beneath it all, were to be managed, not listened to. They were not to be engaged with in serious conversation. They were not beings in their own right, for they were just passing through, transient proto-humans, endlessly, year after year, in the graceless act of becoming. That was how it was. That was the culture. At the time, it thought itself too soft. A hundred years before, the duty of a parent had been to break a child's will with a beating. Roland thought that those in his own country who itched to get back to these times, the 18 or 1950s, should think harder. And that really struck a chord and made me Mm. think about the difference between my attitude to bringing up my children. I have three Mm. children. Uh Um, They are between 13 and 20 now. Mm-hmm. and the difference between my attitude and my dad's attitude. Mm. So he was quite old when he had children. Right. So he very much had that kind of attitude that is described there in the bit that I just read. Yeah, I think we both missed out. I mean, I would have... I don't want to boast about this, but I would have liked my father to have been a bit like me as a father. Uh-huh. Um, or my children as fathers. My sons as fathers are very close to their children, and they constantly engage you know, in conversations with them. I think that's a social revolution. It's a profound one. And really. a positive one. Oh, definitely. 
Uh, not everything's getting worse. <laughs> yes, I mean, I think of that uh, Ian Jury song, Reasons to be Cheerful, and I keep thinking, I must make my own list, you know, because I spend so much time talking with friends about the world falling apart, that we do need a, a reasons to be cheerful kind of portmanteau, a kind of little list. We need to concentrate on those. And also, you know, we're doing climate change and Ukraine war and the state of American politics and culture and our own government and so on. All legitimate matters of concern. But there can be patterns of things happening under your feet that you're not actually paying attention to. Uh, so attention in that sense becomes really important that you're at least open to positive developments because I think cultural pessimism is now so strong. And I notice it talking to people in their mid-twenties. It's not just the old who are very tempted to feel you, you're coming to the end of your life so you think the world is coming to the end of its life. It's a very tempting piece of projection which needs to be resisted. But to hear it from the young is startling. It bothers me a lot. Yeah, I wonder if, though, kind of their cultural language is one of pessimism and it's in the culture, you know, yeah. everything's post-apocalyptic, uh, everything's like, well, we're fucked. That's just... Yeah, let's party. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, though, when you had children, did you, were you thinking consciously about, okay, what's my tactic going to be? What's my relationship with these people going to be? Or did it just unfold no. naturally? It was just instinctive that you would be more conversational, more sort of friendly than perhaps your parents had been with you? No, it just followed and it unfolded. I mean, anyone who's watched a child, especially a child you're close to and a child you love, erupt into language. It seemed to me at the time, how could you resist? Suddenly, when a a baby goes from single words and pointing to start joining words up and then verbs appear and whole sentences. Such is the nature of human generative grammar that a three-year-old could say something that no one has ever said before, ever. I mean, um, that possibility uh, is right before you. I remember being with one of my stepdaughters. She must have been about three very bright, and we were observing some ants in the garden, busily going in and out of their nest. And she said, I know why ants have very small brains. She must have been four to be saying that, actually, not three. And I said, oh, why do they have small brains? She said, they've only got two thoughts. And I said, oh, what are the two thoughts? She said, in and out. <laughs> <laughs> And there were those ants going in and out of the nest. I only remember this because I instantly wrote it down like a doting parent. Yeah. In a notebook. <laughs> be quite, it makes it sound quite nice. Yeah. Sometimes it would be nice to have just two thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you'd have to have a very small brain to fit them. I think I could manage that. Roland, in the book, is abandoned by his wife just after they've had a child. So Roland is left a bit dazed, just getting on with the routines of caring for a, an infant. And there's a moment when he is sat with the baby sleeping on his chest in a rocking chair that I think every parent of a young child can relate to and remember. Uh, you're probably knackered and a little bit pissed off 
but also incredibly relieved that they're asleep and then you're very in love with them and it's an amazing feeling to have that creature on your body like that resting on your body and you say of Roland he was the baby's bed and his god the long letting go could be the essence of parenthood and from here was impossible to conceive yeah that long letting go is something that you realize is going to happen I didn't even think of, I mean, I don't, I, maybe I didn't think hard enough about it all. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there's no time to think about it. Yeah. There is this point, and that, you know, the, the bit you just read um, is that point where there is no moment in that child's life that you don't know everything about. And I say either there or slightly later in all those. Soon you'll get to the point where you'll meet your son or daughter for dinner and you'll have a conversation about politics or and what's going on and, and then you have a hug and then you go off and he or she will go off um, impossible to conceive when you've got a seven month old sleep on your chest um, and I speak elsewhere of in the novel of the double helix of labour and love I mean they are so intertwined the, the fatigue uh, sometimes the boredom the repetition as well as, you know, the moments of pure delight. So novels are, I think, a very good spaces in which that whole relationship to um, children and change through time can be examined. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write a whole life novel. It's not just about Roland going from 10-year-old in an army camp to 70-plus, trying to get through the lockdown but falling in love with the granddaughter. But the children around him changing too. And that point at which your children know more than you do. And for us who've traversed the analogue to the digital age, know that point in which you turn to someone a third of your age, you say, will you please just sort this out for me? Again, it's quite a challenging moment. You know, that you, you know less than your children. Mm-hmm. You're meant to be a god. Uh, you're no longer a god. You've had it. There's so, worse moments, though, right? I mean, it's it's quite nice in a way. You sort of... Yeah, there's pride in there. There's pride, and I felt relief as well. I thought, maybe they'll be fine. They're mm. probably, they know a lot more than I do in all sorts of ways. Yeah. And if I trust them, if I trust that they have a working instinct for self-preservation, mm. and they aren't just kamikaze <laughs> yeah. lunatics, then they'll probably be okay and I don't I can relax a tiny bit about the extent to which I'm screwing everything up with them mm. you know what I mean except um, a, a, a kamikaze lunatic could still come and sort out your um, the app that you can't get to work yeah <laughs> so that's before they go off on their yeah. kamikaze mission yeah but still yeah I agree um, I mean what one of the striking moments and I, again I, I wanted to write about this in lessons it's not when children are children, but when they're transitioning into adulthood. And you realise that it's not only that they were dependent on you, you were dependent on them. So Lawrence, Roland's son, has gone off sort of hiking and you know, training around Europe and his dad's cooked him lunch. Well, there was no arrangement for lunch and actually his son wants to go, doesn't even come home uh, till sort of two o'clock the next morning. And Roland has to keep up appearances and not be phased by it. And 
you know, say, well, good luck with dinner or whatever, have a nice time. But he's somewhat smitten. And the experience of having your teenage children leave home for university or for a job or whatever it is, especially the first time it happens, it matters less the second time, I think. The first time it happens, you do have that empty nesting, uh, abandoned lover feel, you know, because suddenly the world that's about to be explored by them is more important to them than you are. Um, and that's a useful blow to your self-esteem. You've got to adjust <laughs> in a big way to that. There's also an anticipation of mortality there, though, isn't there, from, your, from, from the parents' point of view? It's like, OK, it's that phase now. There's that and the loss of your own parent. Again, these are all commonplaces, but they are so powerfully felt by us. So if... I think particularly for men and fathers and women and mothers, when your same-sex parent dies, you feel that the ground between you and the grave is suddenly there's no one standing in the way. You're in the home straight to the grave. And you expect your parents to die because the only alternative is, is you predecease them. But still, it's a moment of extraordinary ambivalence because... When the path is clear to your own grave, there's a bit of elation in there too. Like suddenly you're orphaned, but you're orphaned at the age of 40 or 50, or whatever it is. And you're a little more in control of your own fate, even though there's all the sorrow of a lost friend, parent, and whatever. So I take some time over the death of Roland's parents, to examine that sort of moment, that feeling. Roland's mother, like my mother, um, died of a kind of Alzheimer-like disease, a slow death in which the death has already happened Mm -hmm. before the body is gone. So that's a slow goodbye as the brain just sort of folds in on itself and less and less is, is understood. Whereas a sudden death, heart attack, stroke, whatever, which is what happened with my father and, and Roland's father, a um, crucial moment for me was going to see the body in a funeral parlour. When I write about that, uh, give all that to Roland, I just had a banal sense sitting there, uh, just of absence. And not, not that I was in the presence of my father, I was in the absence of my father. And felt absent myself, I felt nothing. I, I, I thought I need to get away from this place and this empty shell in order to feel something. But I did feel a sort of lingering sense. I ought to sort of show some feeling because the rather nice uh, funeral parlour attendant was expecting me to. I just couldn't do it. You know, it just He was wanting me to sit there for half an hour. I sat there for a minute, maybe two. Yeah, I never understood the... Or at least I never, I, I never felt that attachment to the the body and caring about what's going to happen to the body and it's like it's so obvious that the thing you cared about is is no longer there i leaned over and kissed my father for the last time and then realized it was also the first time Uh aha and again i gave that to roland the forehead was even colder than than the rest yeah it's it's, um, 
It's a moment, again, a commonplace, but these commonplace moments in individual lives, as felt, are really worthy of um, patient examination because we're all going to have to go through them. And then with your mother, though, what's how does that work then when you're with someone who's got dementia or Alzheimer's who's gradually, you know, they're, they're still alive, their body's still there, but so many of the the essential parts of them are dissolving or... At each visit, there's less of them. There's less... The consciousness is it's like a closing door. Many of us would have experienced the moment, the first time that, that your parent no longer recognises you mm-hmm. or anyone. So it's a series of of losses. So the death actually means very... means less. Yeah. Far less. So it's a slow... I was going to say slow torture. It's not quite a torture, but it's... A slow, painful extraction of a whole person from from the realm of consciousness, and uh, and very, very sad. I guess for a lot of people, that is got to be one of the more um, terrifying prospects. But you do feel as if, like in ten, twenty years, things will be very different. You know, just when you, mm. I always think about AIDS because I grew up during the first wave of the AIDS crisis and how completely insoluble that seemed yeah, and how distant the prospect of any kind of cure or, or way of managing it seemed. Yeah, and it was distant. Too. It, was. it took a long time, didn't it? And, and even then the solutions came in bits. Mm-hmm. I mean, But they do come and, and you do think like, well, the, most of these things are are going to be solved at some point. At some point. It's usually much longer than we... I mean, do you remember when the the Human Genome Project was delivered at the beginning of this century? The press, the the, the expectation of everyone was, well, now there's going to be genetic medicine and everything's going to be turned round and you're going to be able to grow a spare ear or heart. What we discover is, you know, it's infinitely more complex, but still very exciting. I mean to be involved in that work and a similar thing Mm. changing topic with ai that i've heard you talk about before as as uh someone who feels frustrated by the pace of progress in that area i mean i got interested in ai when i was sent by a magazine to interview a professor of robotics at edinburgh and this would have been about 1976 and AI just languished for years, partly because the hardware was just clumsy, slow. But it was all, the, the learning process was just how complex our own brains are. Um, we do not have anything remotely like a one kilogram little ball with the processing power of a human brain. I mean, in the visual capacities alone you know vast amount of processing just to give us this sense not only of detecting light but of inhabiting our own visual field it's a sort of miracle extraordinary but it's slowly happening um 
but it's not imminent. Like no. when you read no. articles from yeah, people yeah. saying, why is everyone so, uh, why isn't everyone freaking out about AI? It's, you, you get the impression that in 10 years, the world's going to be transformed and we will have to be dealing with, are these sentient beings? Uh, what's happened to our jobs? And all this mm. kind of stuff. That's still a way off. It's a way off, but still we now have face recognition. Yeah. The opportunities for crowd control in China have been demonstrated uh, I now have an app on my phone that listens to all the birds singing in the garden and just lists. Yes, in a few seconds. Which is your one? I've got Chirpomatic. Oh no, this is from Cornell. Oh, you got oh, a fancy yeah. one. Yeah, sorry to tell you, but it's free. Cornell is the, probably the world's best university for ornithology. If anyone wants to go to a university and study it, so that's an extraordinary thing to me. Just to see, you know, I hold it up. Uh, as I did a couple of days ago, and I get blackbird, pigeon, uh, black cap, bullfinch, greenfinch, blue tit. I mean, it just all come up, and it can tell them apart. Yeah. Uh, but yes, we're a long way from having um, you know an affair with a, a sentient, seeming sexy robot, uh, sexy robot, man or woman. Uh, but it will happen at some point, assuming that. Progress continues in the way that it has done for the last couple of hundred years, technological progress. Mm. At some point, that will happen. I guess so. But it'll happen in ways that surprise us, just as the internet. Even when we had the internet up and running in, say, 2002, we couldn't predict social media. I mean, the uses to which a technology might take us. We couldn't predict the invasion of social media into politics, for example. I don't remember anyone forecasting that. And yet we're making this, you know, collectively we make this future that we uh, surprise ourselves with. So I imagine that AI will be rather like that. It'll shock us. It'll come from some other direction. It won't be some au pair who's, you know, robot that's making your early morning coffee. It'll be someone knows something about you. And I think already we're getting there just by your internet use. And, yes. Um, Ads, uh, targeted ads will become sentient somehow. and Yeah, we will surprise ourselves and, and probably well and nastily all at the same time yes. as with the internet. I was trying to think like with technological progress in general and the idea that it's important that we anticipate, you know, we don't know how long it's going to take for us to get to the point where there are kind of sentient technological life forms but assuming that it might happen, shouldn't we be thinking now about whether those should even be created? Because there are so many ethical problems with that, with mm. playing God. And, and you know, you, in, in Machines Like Me, your book, you, you deal with a lot of these questions. You have these Adam and Eve robots that have been created and they are indistinguishable from human beings in almost every way once they've acquired their personalities and and then they start getting depressed and they start switching themselves off and then there you know there's all the stuff about how do we treat these people these creatures and um so we should be thinking about that now we should have we should have think tanks and groups of people sitting around and figuring out the ethics of creating these life forms essentially mm. 
But is that realistic? Is it realistic to think that you would ever talk through the ethical problems with something like that and everyone would just shake hands and say, okay, we're we're not going to do this because there's too many problems with it? I think it's already happening just at the sort of prosaic level of self-driving cars, for example, in which the software, the hardware could take decisions much faster than a driver could. So the moral issue becomes... What do you value most, the person on the pavement or the life of the driver? Suppose if the car had to make an instant decision, either head-on collision with a truck or swerve to the pavement and take out a crocodile of schoolchildren mm-hmm. to keep the driver alive. There was a very large, about two or three years ago now, study, global study, asking people from different parts of the world who are the most valuable human beings. And across the United States and Europe, the most valuable human beings, almost uh, uh, universally stated, were children. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, in China, old people were rated as the most valuable human beings. Mm. So you might have different software. (laughs) Depending on Uh, what country you're in. Yeah, if your Tesla is in in Beijing, then, you know, uh, children watch out. But I think these moral issues, you know, future, uh, there's a department in Oxford called the Department for the Study of the Future. No longer called Futurology because it got such a bad name for itself, getting everything wrong. Uh You know, everyone driving around in cars that zipped along at 500 feet, you know. Yeah, uh, jetpacks, etc. As in Blade Runner. Yeah. Especially especially in Blade Runner 2. What an oppression that would be to... I mean, I already think the idea of Amazon delivering books by drones will just lower the ceiling of our lives. I mean, already we live with uh, contrails, you know, and we marvel when when there were so few of them. Yes. During the pandemic or during the um, Icelandic uh, volcano, we had our skies back. We will just cry for our skies if they're swarming with... um, Drones. Drones. Just to get, you know, a copy of my book to someone two hours quicker. (laughs) Well, I'd be for that bit. Yeah, yeah. Sure. sure. Has there ever been a time when people put the brakes on a scientific or technological innovation because of ethical concerns? No, that's, I think, um, well, no, I think we have had various attempts. There are Geneva Conventions, for, for example, on warfare, constantly broken. But I think that it has restrained people to certain points. I think that genetic interventions with human embryos has been pretty well restrained. Uh-huh. There was that Chinese scientist who got sacked by the Chinese authorities who was messing around with a human embryo, even though it was to make it immune to certain congenital diseases. It was across the line. Of course, that was a press release. We don't actually know yeah. what's actually happening. So who knows how it's going to unfold. Mm. But yes, reasons to be cheerful remain important. What was some of the... Because I love science fiction uh-huh. and I love uh, especially the, the genre of AI movies. Yeah, I was, me too. I was, I was wondering if they were optioning machines like me for a Yeah, start. it has been optioned. I mean, more than once, actually. Uh-huh. Um, so I, you know, um, I've said I won't write the screenplay um so it's sort of out of my hands yeah 
I think I've got a, an executive producer role. So I, I hope that some ideas will get going with that. When Machines Like Me came out, uh, I gave an interview with Wired, and they asked me the, the obvious question, but I wasn't ready for it. I hadn't thought about it. They said, is this a science fiction novel? And I just impulsively said, no, it's a literary novel. And there was a sort of one of those minor Twitter storms in which I was banished to hell for for a week, and then it moved on to some other victim. Why, what had you done wrong, just saying it's not science fiction? I said, I, I, oh no, what I said was, what really bores me about science fiction is intergalactic warfare. Okay. Uh, what I then should have gone on to say is what does interest me about science fiction is the impact of technology on civilization. Yeah, yeah. Starting really with Brave New World... I think we'd have to include Orwell's 1984. I mean, there are televisions there that you're not allowed to turn off, which would, for me, be one of the outer circle of hell. But that discussion of... So within the context of a realist novel, how we live now, dealing with technology, as it, which we haven't chosen, but is impacting our lives at every level, so that now to lose your phone, for example, your mobile phone... Is a sort of minor disaster. It feels like you're losing a part of yourself. Yeah, it's, it's bigger than losing your wallet or your keys. Yeah. We're all three at once, of course. As you get older, you get good at losing all three at once. And Machines Like Me, from that point of view, definitely, certainly is science fiction. Yes. And I, and I have read, and I'm always interested in ways in which... I mean, there's now a vast literature of about climate change and... I suppose we call it climate change because it's the consequence of our technologies that we're having to deal with, the burning of fossil fuels, the substitution of animal power by steam power and then electricity and so on, and then oil, coal, overloading our atmosphere with CO2. is To me, that is the ultimate science fiction novel. So they're very difficult to do. You either show the post-apocalyptic world and it's a desert, which is sort of no hope, kind of like Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Mm-hmm. A fascinating book. I mean, it's bleakness, just um, almost cheers one up. It's so bleak. You meet yourself coming the other way in, in bleakness. Um, or it's pitched in some other kinds of more hopeful sense that it hasn't quite happened. We haven't yet got the full blast of the disaster, but can we head it off? I was asked to write a short story recently that would be optimistic about the future, and I thought it was such a challenge that I then wrote the story. So it stretches between roughly now and halfway through the next century, and... The task was to describe the ways in which things get better. So I thought, first, they have to get a whole lot worse. But one of the ways we dodged the bullet of climate change is that we had a few local exchanges of tactical nuclear weapons that put up so much dust in the atmosphere that it gave us an extra 20 years to deal with the problem. So, Oh, and... Um, genetically altered dogs that thrive on plastic. Um, <laughs> so, you know, all the rubbish in the household. Already there are bacteria that they 
altered to eat plastic. So I oh, thought, I, was, I thought you were going to say already there are dogs that love to eat rubbish. Well, I know that's true. Oh, well, they eat rubbish anyway. <laughs> Um, and I thought, yeah, well, you, you think a dog can eat almost anything. Why not, you know, those plastic milk yeah, bottles? Yeah, absolutely. Plastic bags. There are nutrients in there somewhere. Chili-flavoured bin liners. Yeah, all of that. But part of it was just a kind of comedy in which I was trying to convince myself of things that aren't going to happen. But part of it was, I thought, actually, this is a necessary exercise. How do we address the ways in which we're going to get away with you know I mean here I am in your studio looking sort of north northeast and already I see something quite utopian about it look how many trees there are London is supposedly one of the greenest cities in the world yeah like from the point of view of actual trees I'm not talking about that yeah environmental yeah sure without those rather ugly blocks in the foreground we're looking at a rather wonderful conception of how people might live alongside trees and water. And it is extraordinary sometimes to contemplate, you know, that you have six, seven, eight, nine million people living in more or less one place, and they're not all killing each other all the time. Mostly they don't. Mostly we rub along. Even in Paris, you can stop a complete stranger and ask the way and not always get spat on for your <laughs> terrible French. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Did you ever like Brian McGee? The philosopher? Yes, I was a friend of his. Were you really? Yeah, we had regular lunches. I was very, very fond of Brian. I only found out about him last year because they published a load of what they called the, his pensée in the New Statesman. And I'd never known about him before. I sort of dimly remembered him when I looked at him on YouTube interviewing uh, Herbert Marcuse. And uh, I thought, oh, yeah, I think I remember this guy from when I was growing up. You know, it was one of those things you'd skip past... Mm. <laughs> when you're looking for cartoons. But did you read that collection of all his little aphorisms? I think and I thoughts? have. A, they were collected into a book. So, yes, I mean, yeah. I'm familiar with them. They were great. He led a very interesting life. Uh, you know, he was a Labour MP, then he was a television personality, then he wrote philosophy books. Also, he led the most interesting, rootless life in that he had a, an apartment in North Oxford. But he spent an enormous part of his year just moving from various nicely funded foundations that wanted thinkers to come and just be there and work for a month or two. And he just shifted. Sometimes he'd be in somewhere north of Hamburg, then he'd be somewhere in Santa Fe, and then he'd be back in Oxford for three weeks, and then he'd be off again to somewhere in Surrey. He loved the college life, but his colleges were global, uh, much love. And he had this very old-fashioned, extremely attractive, high-pitched sort of way of speaking, of sort of rather earnest and focused, wonderful listener, sort of exquisitely courteous in conversation, intensely curious about others, always 
always interviewing you, as it were. Uh -huh. um, well, his... Uh, I'm very, very fond of mm. Brian McGee. His conversations with people like Marcuse and yes. Noam Chomsky, Iris Murdoch, Isaiah yeah. Berlin, you can find a lot of them on YouTube these days. And they, they are from end of the 70s, early yes. 80s, a time when TV could still accommodate those long-form yeah. conversations. And that's all yeah. it was. There was no cutting away to an animation or anything like that. It was well, just... you're, you're, you're the inheritor of that. Yes, the podcast world. Yeah, yeah exactly. Anyway, it was really fun finding out about him. There were some of his pensées that I really loved. They're almost like lyrics from songs or something. Have you got one there? I've got, a, I've got a few to throw at you. Yeah. Adults are burnt out children. <laughs> That's a good one. Work gives meaning to your life, however unimportant the work. Mm. Only a depressive knows true joy. That's a big one. Yeah. My friend, the philosopher... Galen Strawson sent me one this morning. It was a remark by um, Betty Davis, which was, um, old age is not for sissies. Yes. <laughs> uh, I wrote back and said, she could equally have said, old age is only for sissies. <laughs> <laughs> Pain mm. is unbearable music, says yeah. Brian McGee. Here's one that I didn't really understand, uh -huh. and I was going to ask you what, how you interpreted it. Charm is a mode of submission. Yes, I, I think I understand what he means by that, that charm is a way of making your interlocutor feel a little more empowered, so you have to be less empowered. Uh-huh. And they like you for that. Okay, okay. Oh, it's nice to be reminded of Brian. Yeah, well, I'm hoping um, that people will, will seek him out. Really, I found mm, that The most courteous, civilised man. He knew everything about um, Wagner. In fact, he knew everything, seemed to know everything about everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, I asked him one lunch, maybe five years ago, I said, what do you regret most about old age? And he thought for a bit and he said, sex. And I said are you missing having sex? And he said, no, it's not that. What I miss is, he said, was not feeling any sexual impulse at all. Uh -huh. Not even frustrated sexual impulse or whatever, but just it's gone, the impulse, the desire. And it was such a large part of my life, he said, that it's like a hole, you know, it can't be filled with something else. It's like a, f a word you can't f remember. You know, yeah. um, so... That's all ahead of us. Does there, not everyone loses their sexual appetite, though, do they? In I think age? when you're well, I don't know. I should, we shall find out. Yeah, I guess. Larkin famously says at the end of a barn. <laughs> um, what are the things that you like about your older self? Things that your the thirty-year-old version of you didn't know. Didn't know about what my thirty-year-old self didn't know about was that there's a good chance in your old age that you will have a surprising love affair with a grandchild. Uh -huh. And it's an explosion of love that you just were not counting on. So um, you have to put that on your reasons to be cheerful list. Uh, which is why I, the book really bows out with a nine-year-old German girl saying, here lang, this way... Uh, leading her grandfather across the room to dinner. 
so certainly that. I think the growth of a certain kind of tolerance and patience um, surprised me, actually. People who might have irritated me intensely uh, once no, no longer do quite the same way. Yes, a widening of tolerance for all kinds, and that surprises me. Yeah, it's usually the opposite way yeah. isn't it, for a lot of people. With, with old people, I don't know. Well, there is the temptation to be sort of grumpy and cross, as you found me on the pavement outside King's Cross, walking towards you, having been dumped a mile away. Uh, but those are just sort of, you know, sure. passing moments that uh, don't sit in the memory much. And, the, of course, the other sad thing, a much, much sadder thing, is, is the death of friends, mm-hmm. contemporaries, um, and dealing with that kind of absence too. Really old people that I've known talk of a kind of loneliness, that they're the last ones standing among their generation. People in their you know, mid-90s, mm-hmm. the only people they know are much younger than themselves. And that must be particularly trying. Yeah, you've got to have a good hearing aid. That's what I realised when my dad was in his 90s. What was that you said? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, as I understand it, as we get older, there is just uh, inevitable falling away of of detecting the higher frequencies. So when you hear old people say, the thing about the young these days is they're always mumbling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's because you're not hearing the whole range surely there's got to be something that can be done to get hearing aids really good because it's such a it was such an important part of isolating my dad when he was old yeah and he didn't want to get hearing aids because he couldn't be bothered they were so annoying and the sound was so crap yeah same with my father he was very intolerant of yeah of anything like that and the problem i mean my, my hearing remains fairly good but the problem is that we tend to confuse deaf people with stupid people Mm -hmm. my friend David Lodge written hilariously about the ways in which stupidity and deafness get conflated he wrote a novel called Deaf Sentence which I thought was a rather nice Mm -hmm. title but yeah just that's just but I mean there's a whole I mean the list of afflictions of old age there's very little to be said for it yes very little how about uh, and finally what makes you laugh these days do you ever watch comedy i can't picture you watching like stand-up comedy specials on netflix no oh friends make me laugh live anecdotes from friends make me laugh much more than someone who's being paid to make me laugh right okay rare that it's true actually i think here's another bit of the downgrade one laughs less easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My dad yeah. despised comedians. <laughs> he would just say, just yeah. comedians. He really didn't like comedy. But when I think the hardest I've laughed in the last 10 years was when I was, I was with my son and daughter-in-law and we were, we were all just trying out cross-country skiing. I mean, we could all ski, but we'd never done and these narrow... Lang and, and Yeah, and your heel rises up. We were all finding it really difficult to turn on these things. Um, but anyway, my son and I came down. A, you wouldn't even hardly consider it a slope if you were in skis. And my daughter-in-law came down third, completely out of control in just the way we had been, and hit a bump and landed in a tree, like a cartoon figure, wow. hanging from a branch. And even now... Uh, it makes me laugh to think of it. 
so life, those, because she was unharmed, and there was a sort of moment when... Could have been the, way worse. Could have been worse. So there was huge relief in the laughter. Yeah, yeah. Such moments do still entertain me very much. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess that's the misfortune of others. Yeah. One shouldn't laugh too hard. Because there is funny stuff in your books, and the I mentioned I, I the first book of yours I read was Solar, and there's that scene on the skidoo when oh, right, yes. the scientist protagonist believes that well, he's taken a wee in sub-zero temperatures, which he's been advised not to do, gets on this skidoo, and then... Well, also, his penis has glued itself to his zip. Yeah. So he... <laughs> Because he's a scientist, he remembers that the freezing point of brandy in his hip flask uh, is much lower than water. So he pours the brandy over the appropriate spot and thinks he's got away with it. But back on the skidoo, with a, a wind coming towards him at sort of minus 30, and then he feels something slip down his inside leg, uh, something that he's almost certain is a part of himself, uh, and thinks, you know, he's lost it, it's frozen off, it's all over. <laughs> um, I was on a skidoo, and it was well within the Arctic Circle, but while I was on the skidoo, I, I thought, God, this could so easily happen. So it was, became very tempting to write it as if it did. And, of course, when he gets to the, where he's going and gets undressed and, and he's ready for the ultimate horror, you find it was his lip salve stick that had fallen <laughs> down his trouser leg and he was actually this, intact. It was this frozen knob. No. <laughs> Broken no, knob. It was still there. <laughs> it hadn't snapped off. And the Americans didn't like that. I can't no, they didn't like that. No, You can't please everyone. Wait. This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area. And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Calling Captain Hey, welcome back, Podcats. Rosie has just been standing in the same spot while I've been wandering around doing my intro. She got so far up the track, and then, as if there was some border that I wasn't aware of, she just stopped and didn't want to go any further. She is an absolute mystery dog. Are you okay, dog? 
There's something going on with you, isn't there? But I'm not exactly sure what it is. I don't know if... Well, the fields have been ploughed around here recently. Maybe they ploughed up some bad spirits. In which case, fair enough, I don't blame you. I don't like bad spirits either. She's waited very patiently for me to do everything I need to do. (laughs) And now she's looking around waiting for me to walk back towards the house with her. Which I'm happy to do, Rosie, but I have to do this outro... Are you going to be able to hang in for that? Dog log? I love you. What's going on with you, Dog Tanyan? Ah, well. We're all getting a bit old and cranky, I guess. So, that was Ian McEwan, obviously, and I'm very grateful to Ian and Ian's people. There's a few links in the description of today's podcast that you might find interesting. There is a link to the bird identification app that Ian mentioned, Merlin, developed by people at the Cornell Lab. Not too many birds today, now that I come to think of it. Where is Technobird? I don't know if Technobird hangs out at this time of year. Or maybe the birds have also been driven off by the evil spirits that Rosie's worried about. It's all kicking off here at Castle Buckles links what are the links there is a link to most of that argument scene from before midnight between julie delpy and ethan hawk uh it is a good scene there is a link to the article from the new statesman about brian mcgee and his pensee compiled by Jason Cowley with an introduction by Henry Hardy and I've linked straight to the New Statesman site so I'm not sure if that's behind a paywall. I'm a subscriber so it works for me. Uh, Anyway, apologies if you can't see it. And also on the subject of Brian McGee there's the Herbert Marcuse or Marcuse interview on YouTube there from 1977, if you fancy some old white guys talking about uh, Marxism. Who doesn't like that? What else have we got? Steven Pinker and Ian McEwan talking about good writing, sort of quite a lot of um, grammar Nazi stuff in there, (laughs) which I always find fairly entertaining. 2021, they're not being grammar Nazis, or at least not all the time. But they're talking sort of around the subject. And that, I think, is probably sort of it for the links. Oh, no, except further up the link list are a couple of videos that I hope you will find relaxing and uh, useful in these stressful times. There is a video that my brother showed me. I saw Uncle Dave yesterday. And we were talking about public art in airports I was talking about the amazing clock they have at Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam that has a big circular opaque face and behind it you can see slightly blurrily a man who is there drawing the hands of the clock onto the glass from inside and he wipes them off each time the hands change position every minute. It's kind of amazing. It's not a real guy, obviously. 
I don't think. <laughs> it's a piece of video, but it's really great. I like things like that. And there is an amazing kinetic rain sculpture that I hadn't seen before in Singapore by Art Plus Com, a German design firm led by Jussi Angersleva. It's these metallic droplets all suspended and attached to little motors that are making them rise and fall in incredible computerized patterns. And uh, like when you first start watching it, if you do watch it on YouTube, it looks a tiny bit blah, but then it gets very non-blah quite fast. And yeah, kind of relaxing. But Rosie is now standing because I've gone, I've taken another turn that is not directly heading home. Rosie, you're being sort of unfriendly. All right, well, head back. I was saying the other video that I hope you'll find relaxing is Dozy Rosie that I promised you a few weeks back. And actually it was uploaded a week or so ago, but it wasn't in 4K. And I had been crapping on about how high res this video was. (laughs) So they re-uploaded it this week. And when I say they, that is Little Dot, the company that is currently making episodes of the podcast available on my YouTube channel and also putting out clips of some of the conversations I've had over the years. And anyway, they kindly uploaded for me the video I shot a few weeks ago of Rosie curled up and having a nice snooze on a sofa in Castle Buckles while my son Matt noodles away on the piano in the next room. Kind of improvised ambient jazz noodling. And the overall effect I hope you will find is relaxing. It lasts just under 13 minutes and nothing happens. I thought it would be a nice antidote to the uh, frankly excessive levels of energy and excitement to be found elsewhere on YouTube. I read some of the comments. All very nice. Thank you if you left a comment. People are nice to dogs though, aren't they? (laughs) They really like dogs. You have to be a real baddie to uh, troll dogs, I reckon, don't you think? But there was one comment on the re-uploaded version of Dozy Rosie that made me laugh, which was from a guy who put just three words, each one with a full stop, fastest unsubscribe ever. (laughs) I thought, okay, you didn't need to tell me that, but that's okay, fair enough cheerio he'd only just subscribed and the first video up was a 13 minute 4k epic of a whippet poodle cross dozing on my mum's old sofa party time hello fact checking santa here the youtube comment that adam just mentioned is actually easiest unsubscribe ever not fastest unsubscribe ever slightly changes the nuance there i think uh there were probably other factual inaccuracies in the episode but that's the one that i decided to correct oh, 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 oh. 
Okay, that's it for this week, Podcats. Thank you very much for coming back. Thank you very much indeed to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for his work on this episode. Much appreciated. Thank you, Seamus. Thanks to Helen Green. She does the artwork for this podcast. I love it. And thanks to Acast, as ever, for their ongoing help and support with the podcast, keeping the show on the road. Thanks very much to you. Thank you very much. Mid-autumn hug. Hey. Great to see you. I hope all's reasonably well with you. Take care. And I love you.